Welcome to the Cross Loganville's podcast channel. Well, good morning, Cross family. My name is Rick. I'm the pastor of Student Ministries. I do hope that if you've not been baptized yet, you will consider it. Uh, get signed up. Uh, if you've not given your heart to the Lord, I also really encourage that. We'll be talking about the kind of life that that is today. Uh, my son, Ricky, is about five years old, gave his heart to the Lord maybe about six months ago. And on the way back from Wednesday night, Kara's talking to him. And he said something about, he goes, I, I just, I love Jesus. And she goes, really? You know, and sees this as the opportunity to, you know, usher him into, you know, relationship with the Lord. And he says, yeah, but I don't want to like go in the water. And I, and Kara's like, that, that's okay. And so he hasn't been baptized yet, but if you had given your heart to the Lord, maybe when you were five, but didn't want to go in the water, the opportunity will soon be coming up. Okay. So uh, just email us. Uh, so my name is Rick, pastor of student ministries. Um, uh, we just finished our last Wednesday night service, uh, this last Wednesday night, uh, 10.30 uh, on Wednesday through the summer. The students will meet at Coffee Camper to do devotions together, so we will remain connected. Uh, but we'll begin again on Wednesday nights in August. But Tim asked me a few months ago if I would share today and if I'd share some of what we'd been talking about in on Wednesday nights. And so I'm very, very happy to do that. Uh, I've never uh, done this before, but this semester we, from January until about May, the theme really was uh, framed by a particular book. Uh, I've never used a book to organize uh, the messages before. But this book is one of the top 10 most helpful I've ever read. It's called With by Sky Jatani. Uh, I gave this as a gift to one of my groomsmen. My groomsmen got books as gifts. Hopefully they liked it, all right? Um, but this is one of the most helpful books I've ever read. And part of it's because it gives something like a compass or a map to uh, our relationship with the Lord. And uh, the main premise of this book is this, that we were created as human beings to live the with God life, uh, that, that life is most fulfilling. We are most rightly related to God, our neighbor, ourselves, when we're centering our lives around the presence of God rather than anything else. Uh, so for instance, uh, Dallas Willard has said that uh, if Adam had never sinned, he would have still lived by grace. And what he's saying is, yes, we do need forgiveness for sins. Yes, we, we do need a sanctification by God. But if that wasn't even a problem, the ideal life would still be in keeping in step with, with the Lord. Grace is not just forgiveness of sins. It's empowerment to want what God wants. It's wisdom. It's guidance. It's the energy uh, that we need. Uh, Ortberg says something very similar in his book, God is Closer Than You Think, which is a fantastic one. Uh, and it, it, in there, he says, the main message of the Bible is not God forgives you, it's God is with you. And so forgiveness is important, avoiding sin is important, but the reason we would want both of those is so that there's less and less separation between us and God in any possible way. And so the ideal life is, is the one that is funded, directed, sourced uh, by the presence of God because in the presence of God is the fullness of joy. Uh, Thomas Merton said that our Eden, our Garden of Eden, is the heart of Christ. And, and you are not nearer to the heart of Christ than when you are truly seeking the kingdom of God, wanting to be in his presence as an end in itself, and everything else revolving around that pursuit. Um, and so what Skyjitani talks about is he uses this model like a target, right? Or like a compass where the dead center, that middle, is with. That's the part we want to be aiming for. Um, but like, you know, with a target, there's these outer rings. 
and under with you would there's four different attitudes that are possible that are that are likely that we can have one is the under god attitude the other is the over god attitude there's the from god attitude and the for god attitude and all four of these uh include some really important things no doubt about it um, if we focus too much on any one of them, though, even though they're good, we can miss the direct point, and that is to actually live life with God. And so I'll give you an example of the under God life. It's basically uh, having a relationship with obedience to God that's, that's unsustainable. All right? Obedience to God is important. It is better that we obey God out of fear than to not obey at all. But it is so much better to obey God out of love than fear alone. So Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. That's like one of the expressions of love to Jesus is to obey him, to trust him enough to do what he says to do, because it's actually best. Um, but oftentimes, I'm sure if you've spent any time in church, uh, we've, we've done it ourselves. Uh, we've seen other people who obedience really is just coming from a place of anxiety or fear, whether that be disapproval from other Christians or fear of punishment from God. And like I said, sometimes those you know, guardrails can be helpful, but obeying God only out of fear will result in a certain resentment towards God. It will become exhausting. This is a real big part of Martin Luther's life to where he just felt crushed by all these commandments that he couldn't live up to. And the reason he was so excited about grace is because finally when he realized salvation is the gift of God, it can't be earned, it was like he could breathe again, and he just becomes free. Um, and so another thing that happens when we're obeying only out of fear of God or only out of disapproval from other people is it, be it becomes kind of like a competition sometimes. We resent people that aren't trying as hard as us. Um, we might even envy the, uh, the easygoingness of people who don't follow God at all, right? And so this causes a lot of conflicts. It's, it's really not a freedom thing and it becomes unsustainable. So much better to obey God, right? But from, a, from an attitude of love, from being in his presence, from actually thinking that what he wants is truly best for us, uh, others, and each other. Uh, the, the over God posture is one, it would basically look like approaching the Bible primarily as a book of wisdom or principles to live by, and not fully seeing the scripture as the story of God's redemptive work with us, right? And finding our story in the scripture. Um, certainly the Bible is loaded with wisdom, but one of the more extreme examples would be uh, Thomas Jefferson um, cutting out all of the verses that referred to miracles, right? He wanted to keep the Bible as valuable because there's some moral teaching here for the Western world. Uh, the philosopher Immanuel Kant was doing the same type of thing um, where they want to hold on to the Bible because it's a moral guide, but they want to get rid of any supernatural stuff. And so what that means is we can, you know, pick and choose what we want to listen to um, and just basically have an attitude of, I'll, I'll take some of the stuff God says because it applies to what I'm trying to accomplish in life, but wisdom is actually meant for us to live in the best relationship with God that we can. Wisdom, as you can imagine, as you reflect on your own life, wisdom is really helpful for loving your neighbors yourself, right? Sometimes that really requires wisdom as we're following God, uh, not, for his, uh, not for the goal of living independently from him, right? Um, the from God life, in its most extreme case, might be watching late, tight, or late night TV, 
where some televangelist is asking for a few thousand dollars because you'll get a miracle if you send him the money for the private plane, okay? Uh, he'll reward you if you pay him. And th that's an extreme example, but a less extreme example would just be seeing God primarily as the provider of gifts or what we want or even what we need. And so uh, when we were going through this on Wednesday night, I told the students, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, like that was his idea. It was very gracious of him. It was very generous of him. Someone didn't go up to him and say, that kid with his lunch, can you turn that into food for all of us? All right. That was Jesus's idea. He was generous. He does provide for us. Uh, but when the crowd then came after him, when they wanted more bread and fish, he calls him out, but he doesn't say, why aren't you thinking about me? Why don't you bring me food? What he's saying is, you're only coming to me for bread when I'm the bread. And he's saying, I am the provider, but you're not asking me to provide enough for you. It is my presence you should want. It's, it's to be in a relationship of teacher and student and rescued with Jesus that we're actually built to have, not just him being the provider of the physical needs we have, but also the spiritual needs. Um, and then finally, the from God, or excuse me, the for God posture is the one that's usually most uh, promoted in churches. We would consider it the most authentic, probably the most admirable, and that is when we're trying to live sacrificially for God. And again, service is important. Uh, loving neighbor is important. Uh, trying to reform society so that people suffer less is a good thing. But Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians 13 that you can die a martyr's death and we can give everything we have to the poor. We can sacrifice a lot and without love, we gain nothing. Like we're missing the point of it. And so God's not just trying to use us as a tool. He wants us to be in a relationship. He's not just a dispenser of wisdom. That wisdom is there so that we can have the fullest relationship with him. Um, he does provide for us graciously but he wants to provide more for us than just the stuff we need. He wants those things to be there so that we can have a full relationship with him. And obedience is absolutely crucial, but it's an expression of love for Jesus, not just fear of God. So uh, some of you guys are aware that I'm a bit of a food enthusiast, okay? Not a foodie. Foodies are cool. Um, Kara's a foodie, my wife. Um, but a food enthusiast, I just, I appreciate it. So I've had friends who have invited me out to lunch before just to watch my reaction to the cheese steak, okay? That was served to us, which I appreciate. I look up, it looks like there's food on my face. It's not, they just want to see me freak out about it, like a laugh track to food, except for enthusiasm for food, all right? And so I really appreciate food. And uh, my mother-in-law really likes me for that reason, or at least that's one of the reasons. Uh, she'll cook, she'll make these really great meals, and no matter what she makes, I will say, I'm, I mean it, say this is the best whatever it is I've ever had. And uh, the best pasta, the best meat, whatever. And uh, so the food keeps coming because of my gratitude, because of my expression. And uh, this, this one time she cooked this pasta dish on Christmas, and there was like this paper that she put food in in the oven. And usually when I'm trying to start a fire, I use paper, okay? But she stuck it in the oven and it did not catch on fire. We survived. She really knows what she's doing, all right? And uh, as awesome as the food is and as awesome as, uh, as I tell her it is and as thankful as I am, one thing that has never crossed my mind, believe it or not, is to then pull out my wallet and hand her a tip, all right? And the reason, obviously, is because that is not what the relationship calls for, right? Relating to wrongly to her in that way would, I mean, why wouldn't we do this? 
one, it could offend her, right? The other thing is that it would be pretty awkward. But when we get past those other two immediate concerns, the biggest thing is that if I was to turn a family event and a gift into something that I'm paying for, there would be a poverty in that relationship. It would suck out the fullness of what that event is actually supposed to be. Relating wrongly in this way would rob the moment of, of some of its abundance. Uh, so that's a hypothetical. I promise you I will never do that. Uh, but in real life, there was a, uh, an author, uh, I think during the 1800s, who when he turned 18 years of age, he received a really strange envelope from his dad and he opens it up and finds that it is a bill from his dad with the record of everything it cost to raise him for the last 18 years, including the bill for his birth. And the author said that the only thing more strange than him receiving this bill was that he paid every cent of it and then never talked to his dad again, as you can imagine. It's almost as bad as like when the DMV sends you this thing for your birthday and you're like, oh, they remembered and they really just want you to renew your tag. Um, yeah, um, but when we think of the offense of that, it's painful. When we think of a dad saying, basically, I've kept a record of how you've been a burden to me for the last 10, 18 years, that's a, it's an angering thing, but the, the bigger issue is that there is a tremendous poverty of relationship right there, right? What, we, what I want us to be paying attention to is what relating wrongly to God or to people actually costs us. It's not so much that it's, it causes shame or it causes embarrassment or awkwardness as much as we're actually missing out on really, really important stuff if um, we're missing out uh, if we're relating to God wrongly. Um, so my, I think... Uh, Nobody really gets to skip this. There's different times in our life where we'll kind of drift towards different emphases like this. My own spiritual biography is made up of this, of where it started out as a young person of, you know, very much under God, please don't kill me and send me to hell. Okay, salvation comes. Uh, and then probably around the age of 12, 13, discover the book of Proverbs. So I go from the under God posture to the over God posture where it's like, this wisdom is really something, you know? And then finally drifting into a situation where I realize I actually do need God's help. So there's kind of like a from attitude there. Um, one of the biggest things was praying uh, for a really great wife. It actually worked. I do recommend some of this stuff, okay? But I really plead with the Lord there. There was some prayer Jabez stuff there, but a lot of begging the Lord for a good wife. And, uh, and then finally, as I reflected in college of, and I, I've seen this so many times with people, we'll kind of be ashamed of how self-indulgent and self-focused we've been in our relationship with the Lord. We try to make up for it by being really sacrificial and being really missional and thinking about um, all the problems that exist in the world that we want to relieve, but then finding out that without, without dwelling in God's presence, trying to solve all the world's problems is going to crush you, right? And so since uh, probably the age of 20, I've been bouncing around in the with uh, place, but um, it's, it's a constant returning of the attention to that. So we've talked in uh, staff meetings among the staff before uh, about how one of the biggest concerns I have in the Christian faith today, at least in our culture, is that there's often not a vision of the abundant life with God. Oftentimes, Christians are playing not to lose rather than playing to win. It's because we often don't know what a win looks like. Like, we just don't have that many available visions. 
But I think that um, possibly the best vision for the with God life, for the fulfilled with God life, is found in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. I will warn you, Paul used a lot of words in this one, okay? I think they were all necessary, but this is thick, all right? So you may need to meditate on this for a while. Um, But he says, for this reason... I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to all the fullness of God. Now, you can meditate on any one part of that for weeks, and it would not be a waste of time, but this, this idea of being filled to all the fullness of God is such a grand claim, right? That is such a big thing, that being filled to the fullness of God, think about what your life would be like if you, were, if you had experienced the love of God so deeply that you were just filled with all the fullness of God. Um, we, we talk about oftentimes how advertising makes us unhappy, right? And part of the reason they do that, or the way they do that, is by showing this, us this, what life would be like if we had this car or this watch or whatever it is. Um, but that being said, there is no advertiser that could possibly prevents or present something like you living the kind of life that would be filled to all the fullness of God. And the thing about this is, it's not only free, God is asking us to join this life. Uh, it's, we're used to acquiring things by buying them, opening the box, and like consuming them. This is the sort of thing that you respond to. This is an invitation that is open to us, and we, we experience it by actually seeking the heart of God. Um, we have an expression for people who are obnoxious, and that is being full of themselves, right? But being filled to all the fullness of God would be the greatest blessing for you, for the people around you, uh, and, and for your life. And so there's this, this one phrase that I, I really am interested in, besides being filled with the fullness of God, and that is to know the love that surpasses knowledge. That's an, that's an interesting phrase there, to know the love that surpasses knowledge. And as I was preparing for this, I thought the only thing that I can think of that is that extreme, that is that big, is when I was growing up in Lake Worth, Florida, South Florida, going surfing after school, and to, to know means to interact with, right? Which is the, the definition of eternal life that Jesus gives in John 17, 3, to know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So I'm, when you're surfing, when you're in the water, you're interacting with it. You are knowing it, right? But also while interacting with it and knowing it, you are in this ocean. It's the Atlantic Ocean on the east coast of Florida. And the thing that's on the other side of this ocean is England. Like this is big, right? And I'm aware that I know that I don't know how deep this goes. And I know that I don't know how much space there is out there. I can't even see over the water. There's so much water. So I'm in this thing. I'm interacting with this thing. And I know that it's bigger than I can know it. That is the love that God has for you. That is what we're in right now. And even if we were filled to the fullness of God, the good news is there is so much more there to God in his love for you, you could not possibly exhaust it. And so this is... Uh, this is the life that we're called into. Um, anything less than this, than to be filled to the fullness of God, I think would really be a, a tragedy. This isn't me saying we need to do better because the world needs us to or because we need to measure up to some different standard. I want us to focus on the richness of relationship with God that we could be missing out on 
if we're treasuring even good things above them. Um, a lot of youth pastors, I think, uh, probably when I was younger, was thinking, you know, we'd measure success in crowd size or how well the kids know the Bible or how uh, nice they are to each other, this type of thing. I have a post-it note on my desk that I've kept there uh, for a few years now that reminds me that even those things wouldn't be enough. Nothing less than the fullness of God for my students is what I'm hoping for the most. And so in this little yellow post-it note, it says, uh, fullness of God for KK. The fullness of God for Ethan and Josh and Bueller and even the name of students that aren't here anymore. This is, this is the core aim of the Christian life. And discipleship is a means for that. Everything that we're, we're looking for from the Lord uh, is a means for this. So I think that a clue to this level of closeness with God is given to us in the Lord's Prayer. Where in the first sentence, Jesus accomplishes something that I think we would even still struggle with even after chewing on it for a while, and I'm sure it was uh, difficult for his first hearers to hear. Um, I have a feeling that when his students were around Jesus, you know, they didn't quite understand who he was entirely until after he'd actually raised from the dead. Um, it was, they saw all kinds of stuff. They knew he was special. They knew he was different. They didn't understand that he was God in the flesh, okay? Um, my father-in-law describes his friends uh, one of his friends in a way that I think might be helpful to think of Jesus. And uh, so my father-in-law's friend, he, he teaches at Southeastern. He's got a PhD in biblical studies, uh, written books, a lot of Christian ministry stuff. But the way that my father-in-law describes him is really something. He says, he just seems like the kind of guy who has been with Jesus that day, right? Like he, he, there's just something about this guy's presence, something in his demeanor. There's a graciousness about him. I'm not talking about like, you know, an impressive personality, but it's almost like God's with him, and he knows, you know, that, that God's really here with us. And I assume that Jesus' students also thought, this is the kind of person who seems like he's around God a lot. He just carries this air with him, right? We can breathe in this guy's presence. And so they ask him, teach us how to pray. They probably thought prayer has something to do with how you're able to be the way that you are. Teach us how to pray. And so the way Jesus begins this as he says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So what would have been shocking originally is to hear Father. This is a fairly informal title. Uh, maybe for us, it would be a little more formal. But back then, um, in, a, in a very extremely patriarchal society, like the dad is the, you know, um, very, very formal relationship to him. And, uh, and he's telling his people to refer to God as Father. Uh, I would imagine in their minds they would have thought, yeah, yeah, we said how to pray to God, right? And what we know about God is that God rescued our great, 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 great grandparents from slavery in Egypt. And Egypt is like the superpower that rules the world. Their Pharaoh claims to be God on earth. That's the God that sent 10 plagues and showed all of their... Uh, the things they trusted the most, their gods to be fraudulent, right? This is the God who opens up the Red Sea and water's heavy, you know. The fact that he like actually moved water for old ladies and little kids to walk across this, this land for them to get safe. And then for the Pharaoh's army and their chariots uh, to be in there and then just let it go and God wipe out the superpower leader in this case. And then a few hundred years later, Elijah having a showdown with the prophets of Baal where he's saying, let the true God consume the sacrifice. Prophets of Baal make theirs. 
nothing happens. Elijah douses his with gallons and gallons and gallons of water. And when God gets, when he gets done with this thing, burns it up so much that not only is the sacrifice gone, it is dry as can be. This is the God you're telling us to call Father. That's, this is a new idea, right? This might cause us a little bit of discomfort. But I think it's helpful. Uh, there's I, there's a, a friend of mine who I recently learned. Her grandfather was uh, a general in the United States Army. And she, from what I would understand, doesn't call him general when they're hanging out, right? She calls him pop. And uh, maybe in front of his, the people that report to him, she might call him general. But when it is in personal relationship, he's grandpa. He's pop, you know? Um, Dallas Willard's daughter, Becky Heatley, is uh, continuing to take down his notes at uh, a college where they're preserving his work. She'll refer to this guy that his students would call Dr. Willard, that so many people would be really impressed with and whatever. She calls him dad, right? She might call him Dallas for the point of clarity, but th the point is that this informal title is not a sign of disrespect. It's not a sign of being too, uh, too careless. Um, and so, uh, and the reason we know this is because Jesus is saying right after, hallowed be your name. Like, use this informal title, but with the absolute utmost respect. And so, I think it's helpful. Uh, I understand wanting to, to keep possibly a distant relationship with God because, as the saying goes, um, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. I mean, like, one of the marks of stupidity is not being careful around what you need to be careful around. I understand that. There is the Ten Commandments that talks about uh, not leaving or not using the Lord's name in vain. Certainly, we don't want to get uh, comfort to the, comfortable to the point of disrespectful. However, it's not necessary that this, this really close title, this really affectionate title, would lead to dis disrespect. And part of the reason I think we can keep this in mind is because uh, Jesus talked about um, what the prophet Isaiah had said a few hundred years before. He's talking about these very, very formal, elaborate religious gatherings where the people of God are going through their ceremonies, but they're, they're really ignoring the God that they're supposed to be paying attention to. Right? And so this is what Isaiah says in chapter 29, 13. He says, the Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. And so they're looking as impressive as can be. They're as formal as can be. They're not going to call him Father. They're going to call him Lord. They're going to be really elaborate in how they address him. But what is he saying? I know they're not paying attention to me at all, right? And so it would be a mistake to think that informality equals disrespectful because disrespect can happen in absolutely formal situations. Um, I've, I've taught in quite a few places. I've taught many sixth graders since this. I've taught at Southeastern, freshman in college. I'm still recovering from teaching this one class of sixth graders uh, when I was 19 years old, though. I was not ready for that. Uh, I thought it was going to go way better than it did. And, uh, I mean, everybody knows the substitute is a target, but goodness, they were not nice. Um, and they discovered the loophole that Isaiah is talking about right here, where I'm in here, and I'm, I'm paying attention, I'm trying to lead the class, and I noticed this pattern that they thought they could do or say whatever they wanted uh, as long as they said sir before. And uh, it took a few times for me to realize this, but I thought, man, this, uh, this informal thing is basically just a disguise of what they're really trying to throw out there. And so Jesus is very aware that this happens. It was the, the fight that he often had with 
uh, the religious leaders of his day. Were they formal? Yes. Were they respectful? No. Did they adore God? Absolutely not at all, right? And so um, this, this balance of having a super intimate relationship with God, even referring to him as father, or pop, if you like, okay? Um, but then also having the utmost respect for him is really uh, one of the fulfillments of worship that he, that he calls us to. So um, formality is not the goal. Adoration is the goal. And joyful trust is the result here. So um, just as a review real quick, um, these four postures, the under God posture, it takes something good, obedience, but does it from a posture of fear rather than love. When Jesus calls us to obey out of love, if we have to get started with fear, let's do it. Willard says, uh, fear is the beginning of wisdom, but it is not the end, right? I mean, it's, it's the indispensable beginning, but it's not the end of it. Love is the actual end. Uh, over is when we take wisdom without wanting God. Uh, the from God life is when we value the things that God gives rather or more than his presence along with it. And then the for God life is one where we're looking to justify our existence uh, or even maybe pay God back for what he's done, which is dangerously close to earning, uh, rather than doing ministry because that's what Jesus is doing and we want to be where he's at, right? And so this, this with God life is available to us. Um, it's the sort of thing that it, it can't be, it certainly can't be packaged, can hardly be described, it must just be experienced.